Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers that call Appalachia home, either from their roots or from the topics and subjects that they are writing about. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Great to have you with us as our podcasts come to you each and every time just from the outskirts of the campus of the University of Mississippi, otherwise known as Ole Miss and Oxford, Mississippi. Mississippi. We are delighted to be here each and every episode, and we're delighted to bring the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia to you. And we have another fantastic Appalachian writer with us today with a terrific new book that I can't wait to talk to you all about and have her talk to you about. It is called This Close to OK. It is a novel, and Lisa Cross-Smith is our guest today. And Lisa joins us as a author of other works, including Every Kiss, A War, Whiskey and Ribbons, and So We Can Glow, and then her new book, This Close to OK. She is a homemaker, and she lives in Kentucky with her husband and two teenagers. So Lisa, I want to welcome you to Now Appalachia, and thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am just delighted. You you are just continuing the trend of a string of outstanding Kentucky writers that uh, continue to do such wonderful work. And we've had a lot of them here on the program over the last year. So I don't know what's going on there in Kentucky, what's in the water or what's in the food that you guys are eating up there. But I mean, uh, the, the work that's been coming out of Kentucky over the last year uh, has just been outstanding. And, and your book certainly is, is uh, indicative of that and should be added uh, to that list of the wonderful titles that we've seen coming out of Kentucky over the last year. But um, you've got a, a really unique story. And um, it's a story that uh, really connects on so many different levels, I think, with uh, personal experience and personal circumstance and kind of how we all feel um, as individuals. And we have two, two characters in your book that we alternate and meet through alternating viewpoints, and that is Tally and that is Emmett. And I wanted to ask you about the basic premise of your story because how the book opens up is Tally is driving home on a rainy night and she sees Emmett sort of standing over on the edge of a bridge, and he's clearly about to jump. He's clearly about to, uh, you know, uh, commit suicide. And Uh uh, instead of sort of driving on or calling the police or something, Tally not only steps out uh, and tries to walk this uh, person back, walk Emmett back from the brink, so to speak, but he also gets invited into Tally's house and uh-huh. uh, he gets to uh, stay with her and kind of get to know her. So I was wanting to know how that premise developed for you in terms of sort of taking something that uh, sometimes we've seen in horror fiction or sometimes we've seen <laughs> other genres and, and turn it around to where it's not, you know, Emmett, uh, uh, you know, uh, unleashing a bad attitude or mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. on Tally, but kind of uh, going along with what she does. How, talk about changing that premise a little bit, kind of turning the reader around to, to that kind of a trope and, and doing something different with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for that. And thank you for your kindness. And, you know, at the beginning, absolutely. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I really, I, I was definitely wanting to do something different. You're exactly right. This could be a horror film. Tally even mentions that um, 
you know, as we get a little bit into the first chapter, um, something that she's keeping a secret is that she's a therapist. So she doesn't let him know that the reader realizes that I'm pretty quickly that she's a therapist and keeping that from him and, and has all plans to keep that from him as long as she can. Um, she doesn't know what he'll think about talk therapy or if he'll shut down and he's talking to her and he's going along with what she's saying. So she doesn't want to really rock the boat when it comes to that. But I, so I created in her a character who was not scared to talk to someone who was going through a crisis, not scared of someone else's emotions, someone else's strong emotions at the time. Um, she checks herself a lot throughout the book to see if she's still feeling comfortable with what's going on because he is a stranger, a strange man. But I, I liked the, I just loved the idea of the stakes being so high instantly. And who would do this? Who, who, is a person who is the kind of person who would stop someone from doing this, but not let the story end there to take him for coffee because she knows warm drinks in her office, her therapy practice, warm drinks can make people open up, decide to, that she felt comfortable enough to bring him back home to her home and her cats. And they make pasta together. And she just wants him to keep talking because she wants him to stay alive. So it was interesting for me as a writer to be able to dig into a story like that, like you were saying, that could go a totally different way. But since I get to create it, I get to um, have it go a different way to where we are actually, you know, we're actually experiencing their intimacy. They get to know each other. They get to know each other really well. And they're also keeping their secrets, but also keeping the reader on edge to see what is actually going to happen this weekend. Absolutely. And I love how, you know, Tally's got this big heart. She is unashamedly Christian. She mm -hmm. is uh, someone who uh, is not afraid to uh, admit those things and is not afraid to reach out. But I think one of the things that Tally and Emmett share is a bit of loneliness. Um, mm -hmm. Tally is lonely because um, she's a recent uh, divorcee. Uh, her husband has now moved on and is having a child with another woman. Um, mm -hmm. She's a little bit bitter about that. Uh, they tried to have children, Tally's husband uh, and her tried to have children, but uh, couldn't, tried in vitro fertilization, all of that. Um, and But at the same time, we have Emmett, who uh, is younger than, than her by about eight uh -huh. or nine years. He's 31 and she's 40. Um, but he's got some of his own loneliness issues as well. And, you know, she tries to tease that out of him. You know, is there any family members that I can call? She asks him mm -hmm. that several times. Uh, what, what about your, what about your, your, your girlfriend? What about your, this, what about your, that? And so each one of them are kind of occupying a space of loneliness. And you were talking about those secrets. Neither one of them really seem comfortable enough even though they're bonding over this weekend, not really comfortable enough to admit that they're lonely to the other one. Can you talk a mm. little bit about that, that theme of loneliness and why they seem to be, when it comes up to those issues and they're questioning each other about loneliness, they kind of talk past each other instead of at mm. each other. Yeah, I love how you put that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Early on, Tally's like, she could kind of feel his energy and that he had this lonesome energy and she was like, she can recognize it so easily because she has that same energy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so through the course of the book, I'm definitely wanting to tease it out. I'm not going to tell the reader everything we're going to, we, I want you to stay with me for the 300 or so pages, but um, what I really wanted to make sure I was doing is to give them the space to share a lot and then also to keep a lot. And I felt like that is really 
realistic as far as humans. You can meet someone and end up, you know, they're really easy to talk to and can tell them something. Of course, you're not going to tell them everything. There are secrets that we don't tell people. But I really loved that intimacy, that forced intimacy, really, um, that we have two strangers brought together in this really intense situation. And so I've talked about this several times before, but it's kind of like if you're in a car accident or, or some sort of natural disaster, the mask really comes off. Like someone needs something like, oh, oh, you know, are you okay? And it's things you wouldn't normally talk to people about. This situation has brought the two of you together. So then now you're, you're kind of just jumping right in talking about things you wouldn't always discuss. And so I wanted to make sure that they were sharing space like that and telling each other things, getting to know each other, but not everything. And so what happens is that she really sets out to be like, okay, let me talk to him. I'm a therapist. This is my job and I can get him to open up to me. But then he turns it on her. He's a really good listener too. And he starts asking her questions. So she begins opening up. Now, usually she's the one who's always doing the listening. Everyone else is telling her their secrets, their darkest points of their lives. They're like unloading on her all the time, both in her practice and then just her life because that's the person she is. But now here's someone who's going to listen to her. And when she starts talking to him, he's like, whoa, you kind of have a lot going on too. Like I thought I had a lot going on, but you have a lot going on too. And so they really do bond through that throughout the book. And I love where a lot of these conversations take place. And you set this in Tally's house and she lives in Louisville or outside of Louisville. And I just mm -hmm. love the house. It's the kind of house we all would want to live in. And some of us <laughs> maybe have lived in at some point in our, in our time. I mean, you know, she's got a lot of comfortable furniture. There's hand in mm -hmm. blankets, scented candles. She's got the two cuddly cats that, uh, you know, <laughs> are always around. And I love that that space provides the opportunity for the, the sharing. And you really use setting as an important component, just as the, the rain soaked kind of bridge is part of the setting. But, but, but the house is really interesting to me. And I was, when I was reading your descriptions of the house again, uh, this afternoon before our interview, I, I was looking at how the house makes Emmett comfortable to share with Tally because mm -hmm. we get a sense he's not familiar with those, those types of, I don't want to say furnishings, but that kind of an environment. And for Tally, it seems like the house is very much what it is, but it's also a constant reminder of what her life was like before her husband left her. Mm -hmm. And so it, it bridges together both of these characters and, and allows her, even though it's her house, you know, allows her the, the, the safe familiarity of, of what her life uh, was and is now, but also makes Emmett comfortable enough to where mm -hmm. as time goes on, he feels more relaxed and more kind of at home to, to do that. And I was wondering when you were thinking about setting and where a lot of these conversations were going to take place, did you have it envisioned having it in Tally's house or is that something maybe you, you, and they talk certainly elsewhere in coffee shops and other places, but a lot of the good meaty discussion between them comes through <laughs> in the house. And I was wondering, did you set that out to do that all along as a, as a setting uh, tool or did that kind of change as you were revising and making corrections? Yeah. From early on, I knew that I was going to soak the book and, coziness and comfort because I knew that they were going to be dealing with such hard issues. So in the very beginning, when she first sees Emin on the bridge, she wills the piece of her therapy office into her mind. That's what really calms her down. Like I can talk to him. She's picturing the way her office smells and the soft things that she has in there and the plants that she has in there. She's picturing those things so she can put those things into her voice to make sure she stays very calm when she's talking to Emmett. And so I did that same thing in her home. I was really 
you know, well, it's funny because you talk about Emmett maybe being like not so used to this, but I love that, especially because he's a man. So, you know, and and men are great. I'm I'm married to one. I live with one and he (laughs) loves the way I have our home, but it's not like our home would be the same if he lived here on his own. He would definitely not have a pink velvet couch. He would definitely not have the candles that I have and you know, and all that kind of stuff that I will focus on because I'm a girly girl and those are the things that I really love. And so, yeah, I really, you know, it's a, her home is a little bit shy of magical realism. It's just a tad bit shy of being a magical place. But it, you know, Emmett will mention it a couple of times, like, uh, feel really comfortable here. Let's, let, let's, yeah, I'm fine with, we can keep talking here. I like this. And even when he leaves at one point, he's like, really misses being in her home because he feels so comfortable there. And they talk about that actually. And, but it's very deliberate on Tally's part into what you were saying. Yeah, that's her home. So at one point when they come back and they're, ma- they're making pasta, Emmett asked about her ex-husband, Joel. And, and she's like, well, this is my house. And we got married and he moved in. And when we got divorced, he moved out. And Emmett's like, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, sure. And so it's like, yeah, that's her home. That's her protection from the rest of the world. She spends all day listening to other people's problems. And then she gets to come home to this really precious comforting space. She has her cats, Jim and Pam, and she has a soft couch and she can knit and just be in her own space. And that's why it's so huge that she decides to bring a strange man, a man who, you know, an hour before was about to jump off a bridge into her space. That's how big and important this is to her and that's how comfortable she feels with him immediately yeah and i love how that that house is really just a comforting refuge for both of them to be able to talk and get to know one another it's really mm-hmm. a, a unique place and a unique opportunity for for both of them to have a little bit of an advantage but also uh, give the opportunity for them to share and talk with one another we're talking mm-hmm. with lisa cross smith here on now appalachia her new book and it is a great one it is called this close to okay and lisa we'll come back to uh, the book here in just a minute but i wanted to ask you a little bit about uh your writing career you've written several books uh, outside of this book. And I wanted to ask you about uh, your short story collection. And your short story collection um, is something that uh, I wanted to ask you about in terms of kind of switching genres. Um, and, and the title of that was uh, So We Can Glow. And Roxane Gay, who is an award-winning writer, said that you are a consummate storyteller. She read that short story collection. She said you're a, you're a consummate storyteller. When you, when you hear something like that, how does that make you feel? And what was it like as a writer kind of shifting from doing short stories and a collection of short stories to then coming back to another novel? Yeah, well, anything from Roxanne is really golden. I was really fortunate to meet her years and years ago. And um, she's been so kind to me. And she's just a powerhouse. She does. Um, she is just a writer's dream in terms of finding someone to sort of focus on and see all that she does. She gets to do everything from comic books to, you know, columns in the New York Times to fiction, young adult fiction, nonfiction. She's really amazing person. And that's a gift to get a blurb from her. Yeah, for sure. Um, when it comes to writing short fiction and novels, I I really enjoy them both. I've I've said this plenty of times before, but I, I prefer to talk about novels. Um, I prefer to talk about my novels than to talk about my short fiction because so many people sort of don't get short fiction. And so I am really tired of trying to convince people to read short fiction if they don't like it. (laughs) If they don't like it, that's fine. Everybody likes their own thing. But people who love short fiction are my people and I can talk to them all day for sure. Um, 
yeah, it's, you know, there are so many things the same and different when it comes to writing short fiction and novels. Um, the things that are the same is that, you know, I have a contract, I have a deadline, I have a book to write and I have to get it done. Um, that, that work of sitting down at the computer or the work I do away from my desk, you know, you know, away from the laptop, you know, when I'm just thinking about what I'm writing. all those things are the same but what's different is the planning for sure when I write short fiction I just sit down and write a story um when I write a novel I have before I even get started I've got probably 20 pages of you know outlines and notes and I you know I have to it's it's a it's a it's a longer process and I know that sounds really obvious but it's a really long process and it's way more involved, especially because I write flash fiction. So some of my stories are just so short. Um, it's definitely not going to take me six years. Like it did, you know, from beginning to end from, you know, this close to okay, or 10 years, you know, with whiskey and ribbons, my first novel. Um, but I really do love um, writing both. And I feel really blessed in this business to be able to have a short story collection come out from a major press and to have a novel out too, because I really do enjoy them. They're so different to experience. And with a short story collection, I could just, you know, with a short story, I could just dip in and out and be done. I don't have, you know, I don't live with the characters for so long. Now, some of them are connected. So I do, you know, I do connect them sometimes, but it's, you know, the feeling is different. It's a sort of the same way, you know, a lot of times, you know, you just have a snack or you have a really full meal. They can both be really great. It just depends on what you want. Yeah, very well said. I wanted to ask you too about your thoughts on seeing the rise of short story collections coming back. I feel like that uh, as a writer and a reader, you know, five, eight, 10 years ago, short story collections were passe and a lot of publishers wouldn't pick them up. And now when you go to a bookstore, if you look on any bookshelf, you're going to find three to five to eight short story collections featured there. What are your thoughts on kind of the the return and the reemergence of the short story collection? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I dig it. I especially loved it because that's what my agent and I used to, you know, when we were selling my short story collection, <laughs> you know, you get to be like, look at all these, <laughs> there are a lot of them, like, you know, and the more, the more there are of us, the more there are of us. And so I, I really love that, you know, I studied, um, you know, so, well, I majored in English when I went to college, but, you know, took some creative writing classes. And so, you know, so many collections are taught in school and writers love them. It's just sometimes, a, you know, so weird for readers who just aren't used to it, or they'll just be like, it just ends. They feel like a story just ends, or they're just used to reading novels. But the reason I love short stories so much, and I'm so glad to see so many of them out now that are making it mainstream, um, is because I feel like you can chill when you have a short story. Like with a novel, you might feel like, oh, I really need to finish that book. Like you'll see it sitting on the table and like, oh, I need to finish that book. I need to have all this chunk of time to read this 500 page book, 400 page book. But when it comes to short story collections, what I think is so cool is you can leave it in the car. You can read, you know, for 10 minutes on a break at work. You can, you know, if you're a mom and you're, you know, your kid is just napping for a little bit, it's like really daunting to think about sitting down with a huge book, but you can just read one story from a collection. And that's what I love about short you know, short fiction. I think it's way more accessible. I think short stories are way more accessible than some people think, but the, the way we'll get there in terms of like converting people is yeah, just to have them pushed in the same way we push novels. Like, you know, you can have a choice. There's some, they don't have to be like so hidden within, you know, the universities are hidden just within like writers or 
a certain level of pretension or anything like that. Like they're for everyone. You can read them too, if you're interested. And it'll only take 10 minutes and look, you've read a short story today. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, well said. So who are some writers, Lisa, that influence you or inspire you or writers that you find yourself going back to over and over again uh, as examples of, um, of good writing and writing that maybe you try to emulate or incorporate into your own work? Yeah, well, whenever I'm asked this question, I always have the same answer, my first answer, because it, it, as a member of the Jane Austen Society of North America, my answer is always Jane Austen. Um, absolutely. She is my absolute favorite. And not so much as me trying to write like her, but just her timeless tales. And there's a sweetness and a hope there, even when things get dark and weird. Um, her sense of humor and just all that stuff. She's my absolute favorite. Um, I really like um, F. Scott Fitzgerald for the beauty of language. Um, I like Sylvia Plath for the beauty of language. Um, I really am looking for beauty on a sentence level. Um, and like I said, um, mentioned before Roxane Gay in terms of everything that she is able to do. Um, recently, Raven Leilani, who wrote Luster. Um, I also, I was thinking of just I love to read poetry. So um, Gwendolyn Brooks is someone I just like to read just for the beauty of the language. So, so often I don't read a lot of literary fiction when I'm writing and I'm here lately, I've always been writing books, but um, when I'm not writing books, I, <clears throat> I do like to read a lot of literary fiction, obviously, but when I am writing a book, I instead read a lot of nonfiction and poetry. So I'm not reading a lot of literary fiction that's like getting into my head. Yeah, very good. Lisa Cross-Smith is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her writing career. Her publications uh, include that short story collection we were talking about, So We Can Glow. She's also the author of Every Kiss a War and Whiskey and Ribbons, but we're talking to her today about her new novel. It's called This Close to OK. And so, Lisa, we've been talking a lot about Tally and Emmett, and we've been kind of talking a lot about their good, their good virtues and some of the things that bring them together. But one of the things I loved about this book is we've got sort of a mystery boiling under the surface as these two characters <laughs> open up and get to know each other. And Tally does something that, I, that, really, that really caught my attention, and then Emmett retaliates in a way that really caught my attention. And mm -hmm. one of the things that, that she does, and, and, and it's almost um, – uh, an issue of trust and, and Tally kind of wondering if she can trust him. But uh, when he's out of the room at one point, she goes through his jacket pocket and finds a couple of letters that he's written to two different females, almost like love letters that he's written to these mm -hmm. two women. Um, and then Emmett later on, we see gets on Tally's laptop when she leaves the room uh, at one point and sets up an email account in her name and starts emailing uh, Joel, her ex-husband, as Tally, typing, you know, emails to Joel as Tally and getting responses and reading those periodically. So there's, there's this undercurrent of a mystery going on here. And, you know, I, I kept reading it wondering, I wonder why Tally doesn't, what is it about Emmett that Tally doesn't trust? And why is Emmett trying to sort of stoke uh, mm -hmm. and prod Joel, given the fact that he eventually learns the kind of relationship that they had and why they're no longer together, but yet the emails continue. He continues impersonating mm -hmm. her with this email address. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about, about this mystery that kind of is, is 
under the surface of these conversations and the opening up that these two have of one another. I loved it because I thought it, it it just proved and it made both of them seem, uh, I don't want to say more human, but it, it, it kind of filled in what I was thinking of as a reader in that, are you sure you can really trust this person? And <laughs> you know, we, we have elements that Tally doesn't 100% trust him and vice versa. Can you talk a little bit about developing that thread uh, as a theme in your book? Yeah, we're, you're exactly right. You know, she, she really does trust him and she trusts her instincts, but she's also a woman and he's a man and she's not God. So let's just see what he has in his pockets. That just felt really normal for me. And she really, it's, you know, she doesn't, she's just like impulsive, really. Like this is the first time since she saw him on the bridge that, that he's turned away or gone. So, so you, let me just see real quick, you know, just to make myself feel better. That's re- that's really what she what she does, and and you know, I, in my head, I was kind of like, oh, you know, she could just be. Ch- may, let me make sure he's not he doesn't have like a machete or a grenade or a list of the women he plans on killing today. You know, like so those kind of things really quickly, um, and and that made her feel better when she saw those. That that made her feel better. She was she still needs to figure out who these women are, what is going on, but that alone made her feel better. For him, yeah, I, I mean, I made a point of making sure that Emmett was drunk when he did that. So he was drunk uh, and just did something he shouldn't have done. Now, then in the morning when he's rethinking on how nice she's being, how kind she is, that was not a really nice thing to do. Although he was, you know, trying to quote unquote, get her back. But he is, he's like, I always think of it this way as a person who like makes a mess and then you try to clean up the mess. And then in the process of trying to clean up the mess, you make some more mess and then you try to clean up the mess. And so that's what he's doing. Joel really opens up to Emmett when he thinks that it's Tally reaching out to him to reconnect. And so Emmett is thinking, I want to honor this box I've opened <laughs> and that Joel's gonna open up to me and tell me something maybe I can feed this back to Tally and kind of help her heal even more because Tally's still going through it and you know like you were saying she she cannot have children her husband had an affair and now he has married that woman and she just had their baby and so Emmett is thinking let me feed some of this back to her. And that's actually what he does in the conversation. He'll read an email he gets back from Joel and Joel will give him a little nugget of information and and he'll give Joel some, some little nugget that, that Tally has given him. And then he's kind of, you know, in the middle of their conversation, although Tally doesn't know this is happening. So he, he is trying his best in his heart. And I can say this because I created him and I know him and love him. That is what he was trying to do. It's just, she didn't ask for that. That's a huge violation of trust. Why are you doing this? And, you know, that is what happens through the course of the novel is he's feeling that a lot too. Every time she's so super sweet, he's like thinking, you know, remembering that he's in the middle of this mess that he should just drop, but I couldn't have him drop it because it made for a really good story. <laughs> yeah. which It sure did. And we don't want to give away what happens when all of right. that is comes to the surface, but uh, it, it's a really great scene when she finds out what he's been up to. But, um, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Let 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 let, let tease tease the audience a little bit with that. Yeah, like let it. that let it. that rest as it is. But uh, Lisa, I wanted to ask you too about you know there's so many other themes that we haven't really touched on. We we've touched on some of them that are in this book 
certainly we've talked about loss. We've talked about infertility. We've talked about grief that both of these characters are experiencing, loneliness, divorce. But one of the key themes that uh, emerges in this story between these two characters is mental illness. And I wanted to ask you about that and what you hope readers take away uh, about mental illness and its effect on people. I know these two characters are fictional and the story is fictional, but what do you hope readers understand about mental illness as they read the story and as they watch uh, these scenes and these dialogues and these things unfold between Tally and Emmett? What do you hope they understand, take away, realize about mental illness uh, and its effect on people? Right. Yeah. It's a huge part of the book, you know, from the very you know, first pages. Um, What's so important to me in this discussion of mental illness throughout the book is that I've made Tally a therapist. So she's obviously a person who respects it, sees it as just as important as your physical health, doesn't see it detached as some sort of separate thing that affects only a certain group of people or a certain person. I have her discuss her own mental health in the book, as well as the mental health of her clients and the mental health of Emmett. You know, she really does. She, it's, it's a real thing for her, her, you know, threading throughout her entire life. So she's not just this person who's outside of people who are struggling with their mental health. She also includes herself in that because we all have mental health to protect everyone. Even if someone's never had a lot of issues with their own mental health, it's still their mental health. We still have it the same way we have our physical health. Um, another thread running through the book in terms of mental health is the, t- you know, the, attender- the tenderness, the belief that it's real. It's a real thing. It's not just in someone's mind. Of course, someone is going to be affected by the things that have happened to them in their life. Really sad things, of course, are going to make people really sad. Trauma is really hard to get over. Some people can get over it in different ways. Some people really struggle with things. Um, you know, for a lot longer. Um, Another point of that is the fact that if you love someone who's mentally ill, sometimes there's nothing you can do to quote unquote fix them. Sometimes you just have to learn to love them the best that you can. And so I've given Tally that really, she just has a strong sensitivity and strong tenderness to those things because of her job, just because of her, the way God made her. And so that spills out in everything she does. She wants to be very careful with Emmett, um, anything that could trigger him or she really tries to tiptoe around anything so much so that he's like, that's really great, but I'm fine. (laughs) Like, he's really like, this is fine. You know, like, he's like, can you calm down for a little bit? Like, you know, he's like, you so worry about, you worry about everyone else all the time. Like I'm, I'm prop, you know, I promise I'm cool, but, but it is really important. And I don't think that that um, can ever really be bad people being kinder to one another, more tender um, to, you know, exhibit tenderness towards someone who is hurting or just needs some love and attention and some sweetness. And so I'm definitely always trying to do that in my books. Um, I'm, you know, I, you know, like when I, when I talk about like injecting some sort of light in a dark situation or having someone who's a good listener or, you know, to, to have the intimacy, you have to have people listening to each other and, and trying to love each other, even when it's hard being honest with each other, even when it's hard. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really big, important topic in this book specifically, but it's something that I'm always trying to put into all of my writing because we're all humans and most of my characters are human. So I'm usually trying to do that for sure. Excellent. So as we finish up uh, today, Lisa, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your new book, This Close to OK, or about any of your other works, 
or just to talk to you about writing in general. Um, first of all, how can they get in contact with you? And secondly, where can they get copies of your new book? Well, you can definitely get copies of the book anywhere books are sold, which is really awesome. I, you know, we always talk about independent booksellers for sure. And, and then, you know, it's, also, it's available in hardback right now and paperback a year from now, but also an audiobook. And the audiobook is really, really amazing. I love audiobooks so much. And also ebook in libraries and anywhere you buy your books, really. In terms of me, I'm on social media, L-E-E-S-A-C-R-O-S-S-S-M-I-T-H. Um, you can also go to myname.com. My website's on there. And, and, you know, anyone who's interested in anything else, not, you know, you can email my publicist or my agent, but um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I'm on there. And, you know, always talking about something every now and then, even though social media can be a mess, but I keep it nice and chill. Great. Perfect. Excellent. We've been <laughs> delighted to have as our guest here today on Now Appalachia, Lisa Cross-Smith, her new book, and it is spectacular. It's called This Close to OK. It starts with a woman named Tally who's driving home on a rainy night. She sees a man named Emmett standing on the edge of a bridge, getting ready to jump to his death. And the story just picks up and goes from there. And it takes you in a lot of different directions uh, that you had not expected and the conversations and the circumstances that unfold as Tally and Emmett get to know one another are really, really fantastic. And as we mentioned, it touches on so many great themes about humanity, about people, about understanding and respecting one another and our differences and our experiences. It's a wonderful book and congratulations, Lisa, on it. And uh, we are so excited for you and so excited that you've shared this wonderful story with all of us. Uh, and as you keep writing and keep getting things published, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk more about it. So thanks a lot for being with us. I'd love that. Thank you. We also want to take a moment as we finish up on this edition of Now Appalachia to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And we also want to give a special shout out to the executive producer of Now Appalachia and the executive producer of all the programming you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We could not do it without her support and all the work that she does behind the scenes to bring these podcasts available to you each and every time you look for them and each and every time a new episode is posted. So Pam, thank you so much for that. And a program note as we finish up, we have a great series of programs coming up very soon here on Now Appalachia. We're gonna step on the other side of the writing desk or the writing table or the writing chair or the writing computer, whatever uh, expression you want to use or image you want to use. And we're going to talk about uh, the business side of writing and publishing. We're going to talk about publicity. We're going to talk about publicists. We're going to talk about marketing. We're going to talk about uh, looking at university presses and looking at hybrid presses and looking at other places that you may be able to find and get your work published. And this is a result of a lot of the questions and feedback we've been receiving over the last year or so uh, off air on the program and we're going to address those in a series of podcast episodes coming up very soon so stay tuned for that we've got a really great lineup of guests that are going to join us to kind of peel back the layers of the business side of publishing and what you need to know as a writer uh, going forward in terms of what happens uh, when you're not writing or what happens as you're looking to uh, get your work submitted and get it out into the world and so we're really excited to bring you those series of episodes and those podcasts and those will be coming uh, very very soon so stay tuned. That's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next.
Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.